This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Spartan 117. Welcome to Quality Time, the KO Koala Entertainment Podcast. Anthony and Skyler will take it from here. Master Chief, out. Hello and welcome to Quality Time, the KO Koala Entertainment Podcast. I'm Skylar Sokol. I am Anthony Nicolosi. And today we also have a special guest. Who is the Anthony? Tell us. <laughs> Joe Belusek. Did I say that last name right, Joe? Belusek? Yeah. <laughs> Joe Belusek. And actually, Joe, I mean, I, I've been I've been announcing you to everybody as the producer at Undead Labs, State of Decay Developer, Undead Labs, but we just found out uh, Joe's on to new adventures. Do you want to let everyone know what's the latest gig for Joe? Yeah. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. I was on State of K2 for almost two years. I started December 2019. Uh, but now I am on to bluer pastures, mm-hmm. as in the great blue developer in South Carolina, South Carolina, South, Southern California, Blizzard. I will be working on Hearthstone. No, senior producer of features. You said right was what you told us. Features. So, what does that mean? What does that What does that job entail? Do you Do you know? So, so the the short shorthand TLDR of what a producer is is herding kittens. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Everyone wants to do their own thing, but you still have to get them all together to play together, and so then you have a nice bonding experience over it. So. Uh, I am mostly responsible for things being at a quality bar on time and what was expected, what was planned for. So I negotiate between the higher powers of the project and the teams that actually have to build things. So I ask the questions. I protect the team from distraction, from, hey, can you just do this little thing for me over here? And hey, can you fix this bug over here? And it's like, no, we're doing this. Or, yeah, we can horse trade this for that, but then you lose on this. Are you okay with that? So negotiator, salesman, pseudo manager, and overall kind of quality cop. I see. So it's it's very it's a very like macro level position. You won't be like working on any very specific features, but you might have discussions about specific features, I imagine, or be involved in those, or are you even higher than that? I'm I actually vary. That's part of the part of the role is like I'm going to be managing a team that is going to be creating a very specific feature. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to understand the goals of that, how what mechanics we have that do that and how successful that idea of a future a feature is at achieving those goals. So I'm going to have to be hands on with the game. I'm going to have to understand what the customers are expecting. I'm going to have to both internally and actual players. So I shift between macro and micro between that 50,000 foot view and that boots on the ground. I'm looking through blades of grass type thing. I'll be even like down into individual disciplines of like, Hey, this concept artist, this part of the concept art phase takes seven days. Can we get it down to three days? And what's that particular pain point? So everything from backend engineering tools and processes all the way up to like, quality of the art i'll be able to give feedback on that and like understand what each person on the team is going through 
That's exciting. Damn. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I wish I had a Joe for my life. <laughs> like dealing <laughs> dealing with all of my different Anthony needs a right? life producer. Um, I need a life producer. I had one. I, I, I mean, we were originally going to go down a more general path, but I guess we'll have a quick discussion about this since this is new and exciting for now. I'm just sure. curious, like, how do you feel working? And I'm not trying to get you fired here, so don't you don't have to throw any like haymakers here. But I'm just curious right. how you feel working on a game as old as Hearthstone. I know with games as a service, right? Games can have a very long lifespan. But I feel like Hearthstone is like definitely if we're like is been here around so long and I assume isn't as popular as it used to be. But maybe I'm wrong. But I mean, yeah, and it's it may not be. And this is going to be kind of broad based across the industry. I, yeah. like, I haven't been exposed to all of the Blizzard secrets, so I can't even like filter things down to share. But it's basically down. Is it hitting internal goals? What are the expectations year after year? And so they're lo- like Blizzard proper. Even uh, Microsoft is looking at the performance of State of Decay 2. They'll have different lenses of what they're looking through and what they're looking for out of that project. Now, my perception is you have very few competitors in a card game space. You have Gwent, you had the um, artifact from Valve. Yeah, barely, have, barely had artifacts from Valve. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you have Magic uh, Online, you have uh, Legends of Runeterra. And then outside of those four or five titles, really, you start going into really, really small companies and projects that just aren't going to pull their weight against you. Like the, any amount of market share they're, they're going to pull and demographic and player base that they're going to pull is so minuscule that chances are they'll lapse from those games and come back to those big four or five titles. So whatever Hearthstone is doing, Blizzard is happy with it. Activision Blizzard proper is happy with it. So whatever is going on with it, it's still worthwhile and it's still kind of the cream of the crop. Like if you look at, um, I forget what website it is, but you can compare average viewer audiences between Mm. two titles on Twitch. There's nothing in a card game that comes close to Hearthstone. Right. They have yeah, the market still, there. Yep. No, that makes sense. So, That's a good point. So and and so like Hearthstone's not Fortnite, obviously. <laughs> but in the context of card games, no one is bigger than it. And right. so is it worthwhile to stay in there? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, look at StarCraft. They did StarCraft one and Brood War expansion, and then nothing for a decade. And then they brought back StarCraft 2, and then they tried a different model with it. Maybe it wasn't exactly what they wanted, but they waited to make it that next thing that they really wanted to do because technology had finally gotten there. I don't think you have to worry about tech catching up to really explode on what a card game does. But it just means that you can be perceiving on a game that then lasts that decade. And it's not just an expansion and competitive esports in Korea that keeps it alive. Right. Or right. like the upper echelon of North American players and European players. And that's what keeps the title alive. This is something that is classically blizzard, easy to play, difficult to master. That kind of mantra is not going to be going away. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting that even Starcraft, which really existed before the whole games as a service model, 
of like how games are made was able to survive for 10 years. And that was before it was really easy to make games survive for a really long time. So you're right. If anyone's able to do that, well, it's definitely Blizzard. Right. And I mean, think about this, even Riot, like they have League of Legends and that's going on almost a decade, maybe a decade now. And they have a very different model and they're exploring different models through Valorant, through Legends Runeterra, through TFT, all their TFT. But then they're exploring different media as well. Mm. They've got their show, their cartoon show coming out on Netflix soon. They've got all of their music. They just like their riot music music yeah on twitter just started so like they actually have a music label now like kind of insane yeah so they're going very meta with it but blizzard i don't know what their overall strategy is but like they're going to keep they're going to do blizzard things and you know that that's just big yeah cool. i don't know skyler if this was an angle of the, your question but um one thing i that i thought is is there any how much do you how excited how in your experience how excited do you feel like you need to be about the intellectual property you're going to work on in order to work on it like um you have an awesome experience which we'll get to in a second you've worked on all kinds of stuff throughout the years and um you know is is that I don't know how maybe that's changed over your career like you that used to be less of a deal and now it's more of a deal like I don't know how much does that affect your your desire to work on something you know it's it's weird like early on I would say it didn't matter but I was feeding more of that professional need I needed experience I needed a title under my name and so whatever means it took to get there I was going to fall in love with it. Uh, I was going to make myself fall in love with it, whatever role I was in. And like, that's, that's a lot of the pathway. A lot of developers took in the early two thousands. So you go in through QA, you find your opportunity, you network, you network, you network, and then you find a way out of, uh, out of QA basically like that. <laughs> that was the pipeline, uh, QA being testers and quality assurance and all that. Um, most of that is not even internal QA anymore. So that's that's an, another sure. hurdle. Um, so, I mean, I got lucky. I got super lucky. I did. I was doing my first contract uh, at Microsoft uh, where I was testing Halo Wars, where I was going through a whole bunch of titles through certification testing. So like Gears of War 2 Japanese edition. Jeez, oh, Japan original release. Um, the Planeswalker, Magic the Gathering Planeswalker on Xbox 360 at the time. I like, played that. Went through and did all that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, like, I got a huge variety of games at Microsoft that first year. And then it was on to Guild Wars 2. I was QA number five on Guild Wars 2. There was no no cities, no maps, no races. It was just, like, a human character that you could walk around in the void. My first three months was checking how accurate the collision were or was on all the different props. It could be a box. It could be a tree. It could be an ax. It could be whatever. And I was cataloging what was the collision one to one to every pixel or was it generic or was it optimized? And so I had cataloging that thousands of things. And every day the artists were making more. It's really kind of hard to love that. Yeah. But as you're <laughs> the, it's, 
as you're seeing the other teams, you're seeing the concept art come in. And like World of Warcraft was really the only MMO that I had played up to that point outside of like some uh, free to play like Japanese and Korean MMOs that were coming over, but nothing that really, really sunk in with me. Uh, Guild Wars 2 fueled a love for working on a game. And that's been something I've honestly been chasing for a long time is finding a game that has that same team and spiritual kind of connection where everyone really truly believes in what they're working on that is also industry shaping like guild wars 2 really challenged the mmo convention and it's still really different than the ones that are out there right now uh, a lot of right people still copy the wow format uh formula so it's there it's different final fantasy does a great job at doing what it's what it's doing um but it's also still kind of in that same vein of wow around that era um so yes now more than ever for me i want to know what i'm working on is something that i'm going to love and hearthstone i've played it i've played it on and off for years now so i i like the game it's very refined it's got that blizzard polish to it and i'm excited by the things that they're doing to keep it fresh and keep it alive like the battlegrounds that's super exciting they're adding uh auto battlers into a card game that's seven years old when they added it right so they're able to implement iterate on it and keep it relevant so that keeps it fresh and keeps it interesting and allows the team to have a lot of creative control about where it's going because it's also following where players are going and so now you have a card game that's also an auto battler that's also a pvp game that's also a pve game and so they're hitting so many different marks and they're allowing so many people in that's exciting to me. Warcraft, absolutely foundational to my gaming identity. Like, I played Warcraft when my brother brought home a friend's copy of the Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness expansion and Warcraft 2. That was my first introduction to Warcraft, and that was, like, weeks after it released. After I beat all the Warcraft 2 campaign and the expansion campaign, I was maybe eight at the time. When that came out, I beat all of that. And then I went out and bought Warcraft 1. Loved it. Completely different experience. Absolutely no polish to it whatsoever. <laughs> Warcraft is absolutely embedded in my gaming DNA. So, Meaning Blizzard holds a special place in your heart, right? It's kind of what you're saying. So you're very right, excited to be, so be there now, I'm assuming. Oh, beyond excited. Yeah. Like when I get down there, I'm I'm probably going to be down there by the end of the month. This is insane. Like I whirlwind month for me. But <laughs> I'm going to stand in front of that orc statue and take a picture. I was going to say take it, it's going to like uh, tears just everywhere. So between Warcraft being foundational to me, loving what the charm and the fun and the relevancy that hearthstone still has after eight years and the people i interviewed with like there is basically no way you could tear me away from wanting to work on the project at this point that's so gotcha. awesome yeah that's really oh, it's, yeah that's uh, you've worked on such a variety of things over your career like like yeah. from game genres and you've worked in a producer role on in 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 that capacity as well like on on various kinds of games like what's um 
is is it in the end it does it does it feel like your responsibilities as a producer on these titles kind of end, shakes out to be the same thing or is is there some kind of like fundamental differences when producing an MMO compared to uh like a zombie survival game right like yes and no i mean it, it it's more of how well do you understand the mechanics that create that genre so like we'll boil it down to something more simplistic arcade racer or simulation racer you have to understand where your title really leans and what like you could break it down to individual features car modification how deep do you go the deeper that system is the more simulation you lean right so when you start understanding the context of everything that makes up your game you start understanding what you need to represent and what you need to do so it's also representing the goals of the studio the goals of your feature the goals of your project so when you have a, a studio that has multiple projects going on you need to make sure that you're balancing out are we are we encroaching on their territory or are we still focused on ours so it's a it's a delicate balance and something that you have to constantly be aware of so uh yeah it, it it's hard to really wrap your head around of like is a genre different as it is is it just your understanding of the genre? Right. I, if I were to say, if I were to be making another MMO, uh, I would have to question, is it an MMO from the WoW Guild Wars 2 era, or is it an MMO in the context of, like, Guild Wars 1 take on it, or Destiny's take on it, where you get a very small subsample of players. You get the Citadel, where, like, you get a batch of players but then when you go out you're getting match made with a random number of players or like four people when you go out that kind of stuff so understanding the industry the type of title that you're looking at that's where you really have to start challenging your own understanding of things and ask people a lot of most of my days are asking a lot of questions because i'm never going to get into the tools i'm never going to get into like how a specific piece of engineering works. I'll go, does it work? Does it work the way you want it to? Does it work as efficiently as it can? That's basically the depth. I need to be able to answer questions that come about those things for in other meetings while I'm in meetings and I'm letting my artists art and my designers design and my engineers engineer. I have to represent them in other places. So I get a high level education of things. So interestingly, like on that note, I had a question written for you that I was interested in hearing what you what you'd say. Would you say that in being a producer, is it more important for you to have a technical understanding of how things are doing? This plays into literally what you were just talking about, or is it more important to like have a nice amount of emotional intelligence? able that to, to help you navigate sort of it, it sounds like you've got lots of parties involved you're representing people you're you're the um gosh the liaison is that how you say it? <laughs> to, to, to right to to the higher to the people to the people with a vested interest whether it's internal or external customers like you're saying what's more important technical understanding or emotional intelligence. You had to choose one. And this this is where it goes down to the individual studio. Uh, okay. 
for me personally, understanding a game, understanding the processes, understanding the technology, the hard skills, mm-hmm. th- those are easy for me to pick up. And so I put less priority on focusing on them because when I have to do something once, twice, I'm going to get that real quick. But people, people are difficult. Navigating relationships, navigating and negotiating those relationships, those departmental relationships. If I make a bargain for an artist and I at the at the cost of something that design wants, I have to log that away and know that at some point I need to fight for design at some point. And so those soft skills of understanding relationships, understanding internally what it means for the team, morale, understanding what it means for a player to get this feature and what it means like, oh, we've been asking for this for a year and a half. Where is it? Uh, You said you were going to do it. Like I have to balance that and whether or not a team takes that into account. Personally, I think it's more, I, I think I put myself at like a 70, 30 split of soft skill to hard skill, because like I said, it's easy for me to go into the database and get familiar with where everything's at, the 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 behaviors people put into like Jira or Trello and stuff like that. And I can wrap my head around that pretty quickly. There's certain behaviors that developers have that tell me that there's a specific problem or a communication gap. So as soon as I get that, I lean on all of my soft skills to massage that out and figure out a way to solve that. And usually by solving that through soft skills, there's a hard skill solution to it. And that just puts out everything. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, that was kind of what I thought you'd say, like, I mean, what you more or less what you'd say. Um, And it it really depends on the studio because like if a, 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 your senior producer, your producer lead production lead is just like, I want this, I want this, and I, I need this database to look a certain way. I need these reports done in triplicate with stamps and like, I need you to come in on Saturday type thing. Like that is one style of production. There are several and um, it just comes down to the personality of how they want to run that department. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you, you touched on this, um, this fact that players might be pushing for certain features, right? Like to get done. You, I mean, we see it all the time, and actually, our audience and everybody, everyone, every gamer is kind of familiar with that side of things. The community wanting things, wanting things, certain things to be prioritized, getting loud about some stuff. What's that like on the other side as a, as a, as being a producer in a studio that needs to, you know, that's being aimed at, like we, we always try and communicate to some extent that it's never, it's not as easy as you think. There's a, such a complicated web of, you know, responsibilities and uh, prerequisites to things and whatever that that really muddy just being able to fix something that might even seem trivial. That being said, um, I don't know. How do studios take that into account? Like, how do they manage that? Um, And do you think they do it well? You know, because you've you have a lot of experience specifically in like the bigger studio space. Um, So what do you think? 
I mean, one thing I do love about Undead Labs is that they have a player wish list and they have it all voted on by the players and they look at that frequently, regularly. And even in patch notes, uh, our lead will call out things that were on the wish list that we addressed in this update. And for the last year and a half, we've been basically doing monthly updates. And so every month, or every other month, maybe every three months, the players are seeing movement on their wish list items. The Undead Labs puts a lot of emphasis on that community aspect because, I mean, they came from Indie Grounds and they needed to prove that their product was going to be valuable in the player's hand. And so they put a lot of emphasis on the community because without the community, Microsoft never would have taken notice without delivering sure. a product that a player base really wanted and really needed for themselves, there would be no State of Decay 2. There'd be no State of Decay 3 coming, right? Uh, so cool. community, it, it depends on the context of the studio, really. I think that one, when you look at the community in general and the tools that the community has to have a conversation with the developers, social media, forums reddit um discord even it really comes all of that is still representing a very vocal minority of the player base take for example like uh this isn't any specific game or studio but if you were to say mal monthly active users say you had one million active monthly users unique they logged in for an hour minimum over a month and then you have your Reddit community that's 1,500 people. Right. And they're just going, we need this. We want this. Right. <laughs> or revolt. Or this feature came out. This is garbage. This is hot garbage. Like, we never asked for this. It's 1,500 people. Right. Maybe who vocalized an idea or is saying something that we gave to them is not what they liked. But what we are measuring and what a lot of developers are measuring are what players are doing. That's relatively new in the last eight to 10 years of being able to measure player behavior. Mr. Mr. Hunter 77,000 X, whatever, might have said on Reddit, like, this game's hot garbage. I'm going to delete my account. And then but, put in 200 hours that season. But then put 200 hours in and play more on average than anybody else. And they are suddenly a legacy player who they're suddenly a whale who's dumping 10 right, grand right. into the game over the year. Well, I'm sorry. Your sentiments are, are, are hurt. Your feelings are hurt. You still love our game. We're going to keep making the game that makes you come back and play 200 more hours. Uh, so those sentiments of, doing what the players want versus what the studio is seeing as a priority really is baked into the data that the team is gathering. And some of the feedback, don't get me wrong, the feedback on the forums will call out and will make changes over time. Once something gets to a PTR type scenario, it's usually too late. They're only looking for like critical fixes. They're looking right. for you to spend hours find unique bugs or reproduce crashes that 
the internal QA team that did not have right. any luck recreating. Or I mean, and, like probably small balance adjustments too, stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, very small things, and it depends on the length that you're going to be on the PTR, how often you're going to patch from that. Like, there's a whole bunch that goes into that too. Uh, so it's not to say that the community doesn't have power. It's just that the team will always prioritize where the biggest problems are. Cool. Yeah. And, yeah. I think yeah. that insight into the fact that you can correlate the, or that studios seem to have more data to be able to correlate sort of like online behavior with the, you know, their actual behavior in game or whatever um, is interesting. Samwise LA calls out in chat, like all about the mighty dollar. Yes and no. It's not always about the dollar because it's it's more it's more abstract than that in how players are being measured. It's not the dollar. It's almost a, the Gary V concept of addiction. Look at the Xbox Game Pass. Those games are for free. They're giving them they're giving you like a hundred titles or somewhere near that number available at any time at all times for roughly 15 bucks a month. There's no way you can play all of those games. There's no way you can put in significant amount of time in a majority of those games. It's not about the dollar. It's about the attention and the time players are spending. If I like, if I have you playing state of decay two for 40 hours for 40 hours a week, there's no microtransactions in that game. I'm not getting any money from you. I'm getting your attention. I am. You are signaling to Microsoft proper. My game is valuable for your time. My game being valuable on Xbox and Xbox on PC through the cloud services or even on your phone. Me or you playing that time on my platform that suddenly signals a whole lot more individual value because maybe you stop playing state of decay two for 40 hours a week, but then you jump in and start playing 40 hours of Forza horizon four. You're still playing something in the Xbox arcade or in the Xbox library. They don't care. We still have your attention. That's 40 hours a week. You are not spent on Sony 40 hours a week. You're not spent on steam. So on and so forth. Like, and you don't have to spend more than $15. That's the magic of the Game Pass. Like, the, it's just a beautiful solution. It's just as beautiful as Fortnite's premium pass, where it's you put in the time and you get enough premium currency to pay for the pass next time. They want to hook you to play for time. You playing for time, even if you don't spend a dollar is then that much more valuable to the whales who then spend tens of thousands of dollars a year. Yep. Awesome. It's really interesting. Yeah. We've had a few discussions about game pass in the past here. And like, I guess I'd be curious your insights because, um, from, Oh, and just so so you know, just just to pause for a second, I think you might have some feedback coming through your microphone when we talk. So I don't know if it's loud in your headphones or if it's coming through your speakers. Just so you know, I to way too much metal music. It's when okay. I was really <laughs> crazy. Wait, favorite metal band? Ailstorm. Oh, okay. okay. I haven't actually pirate heard of metal. Them. Pirate metal. Pirate. Ooh. Okay. 
<laughs> um, what I was saying, though, is I'm just curious how you feel. Like you said, Game Pass really benefits Microsoft because they're, you're spending your time on Xbox games. But how do you feel about, like, games? Oh, you're still getting the echo for sure. But um, I don't know what it is. I just heard a little bit. Um, but anyway, how do you feel about um, for indie studios who are participating in Game Pass? Do you think they're getting as much of a benefit out of it as like Microsoft is like what if their game was just selling off of game pass, would they be getting more benefit? How do you feel about how it affects indie studios and like small developers who don't have this like huge traction, like Microsoft first party titles do or whatever. I unfortunately can't speak towards that. I don't have a lot of insight into how things are monetized or what kind of, and it's really different from studio to studio. So like, uh, Undead Labs is a partially integrated studio. So we're not, we have a, we're owned by Microsoft, but we, they had a specific deal when that was made where there's still a certain level of autonomy withheld into the studio versus just being fully absorbed by Microsoft. So, and depending on by those indie studios who are just being published as like a one-time deal, they may have a very different deal. They may have very different they may actually have something baked into the contract about what their performance on game pass means for them is very contextual so that also kind of leads some of the power to be in microsoft's hands they know what the value of their game pass is developers know what that value is how uh, who's going to give up what interesting so you think yep. i guess right. the overall question i, I want to hear your answer to, I guess, is do you think Game Pass is good for independent developers or bad for independent developers? Because we all agree it's good for Microsoft. Like, it's for Microsoft, it's amazing, yeah. obviously. But what about for independent developers? How do you feel? Even people who aren't on Game Pass, just someone trying to publish a game not on Game Pass, does that make it way harder for people in that space then? like, I think it, it think of it almost like a Twitch example. Twitch has so many people streaming at any time and they have a real discoverability problem. But the the Game Pass library is still pretty select in context, like 100 titles, 120 titles, and they rotate a number out every month, couple months. So if you can get your indie title on the Game Pass, you're only competing with an, a, a few dozen other mm -hmm. titles. And especially when you break it down by genre, you're going to have even less competitors. So then suddenly your indie title gets a whole lot more face time in front of people. And when you think about the number of hours people put into just games that they've downloaded into Game Pass or in games that they've downloaded from Game Pass, if they get bored with anything, they're going back to that app and saying, okay, what's new? What was recently added? Sure. That's, I mean, that's specifically my habit. Like I'll dive in and I'll play whatever for... 40 60 hours or like 120 if it really grips me or however long i usually don't spend much time on mini games i play a lot of everything uh but that indie game that pops up and it's just like it's there okay yeah let's try it if it's good it suddenly means a lot yeah, I, I guess that's a really good point, right? If I'm making, like, let's say a racing game and I'm just releasing it in the normal space, I'm probably competing with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of racing games, right? But if I'm on Game Pass, maybe I'm competing with, like, three or four other racing games. So it's a way smaller, like, competition market for discoverability. And think about this. If you are... So say you, you put out a racing game. It's a hardcore simulation racing game. 
Forza isn't Forza proper. I don't think is on there. Forza Horizon is. If you are hardcore simulation, but you're like top down, like micro machine style racing, sure. you have a new niche to yourself. You have a sudden different appeal to it. So maybe that gets people who are like, ah, oh, yeah, Forza Horizon. That's more arcade. It's not quite my thing. But then you're like, oh, there you go. So. Right go into sub genres within this major genre and so you could really make a racket that way really no totally and the fact that like i think for a lot of games that even have very unique innovative ideas the hardest thing for them is just getting someone to look at the game at all right and so if you even have a chance being on game pass with a smaller market to have someone just like look at the game and be like oh i'm excited about this that's a huge deal absolutely i mean for getting into the games industry, mostly people look at, like, if you have no actual studio experience, did you work on a mod? And right. the second question is, did that mod ship? If you ship a mod or a total conversion or an indie game, that puts you in way better standing than if you've done nothing or if you've just played a bunch of games or if you did a contract here or there shipping something means something if you're an indie studio and you can get that game out and then you can persuade microsoft that it's good enough to put on to game pass you suddenly secured something more of like a five to six to maybe 10 year long relationship of where your studio is suddenly going to go think i mean think about think about undead labs david k1 was an xbox arcade title it shipped for like 20 bucks and like players went to it in droves. It was like one of the most valuable titles on the arcade, on the Xbox 360 arcade. It was one of the best selling titles uh, when it first came out. And then Save the K2 comes out. It does really well. And Microsoft goes, you know what? That studio is worth it. So they make a deal. They bring them into the fold. Suddenly, now that studio is no longer engaged as a indie studio state of decay three has a lot of expectation on it because it is going to be the first title that comes out with full microsoft xbox backing and so that's the kind of trajectory you can put yourself on if you can make a good impression with microsoft now that pressure is even less can you make a good impression on game pass microsoft says yeah we'll give you three months Let's look at your trajectory, the player base. Does it gather attention? Great. Maybe it rotates out of the Game Pass, but Microsoft still takes an interest in you because now they have a huge amount of data about what's important to them. The Game Pass. How does your game behave on Game Pass? Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, there's... Uh... The games, game space, I mean, right now in particular, the gaming industry is evolving. I, th I feel like in a lot of ways, the evolution has been accelerated given the COVID timeframe too recently. Um, I actually had a few questions for you in regarding that because you just lived through that, right? Right. Um, my guess is that prior to COVID, you didn't really work remote, right? Yeah. No, but working remote was a very rare thing. It was usually like the occasional artist, the occasional person who 
was hired, but they're relocating, but they're usually like a super senior position, maybe chief officer position where they're getting ramped up on what the studio is doing and what's important, the problems that they're having. And then they're chiming in, getting reports, but like zoom was never a thing. Like, right. So usually just for interviews, really. So you go from there to now immediately remote, like, one thing we've seen a lot of, I mean, Halo got delayed, uh, Cyberpunk got delayed multiple times. I I saw, I want to say it was a thread on Twitter of um of a pipeline, pipeline dev talking about how they, when they moved to work from home, they needed to pull down the repository in order to, you know, do their work, like whatever. And that the repository, the the size of the repository, I want to say, was around 150 gigs that he had to pull down. And he was on some bullshit like 10 megs down internet. So he was like, I mean, when you talk about the, um, I, I don't know, for the the average gaming audience, sometimes I think, especially this last year, they might have seen like, oh, the impacts of COVID, you know, and that that's just some kind of like token cover your ass thing that you can say because it was hard. So now we can, we have an excuse kind of a thing, but there was, I don't know, from my impression, it makes sense that there was a really real impact about shifting to work from home. Can you give us some insight on that? Well, I mean, state of decay two is a very small project team. It was really easy for us to roll off and do that. Okay. Ship was super on top of it. Like I, I was, out for a conference in late February and I came back on like the 7th and the 7th of March, 2020. So that was like, and watching down like the day before they announced full lockdown that day, they sent everyone. They didn't have anybody come into the office. IT was already like, how are we going to solve this? Bungie did a great uh, series of articles about how and uh, video docs about how their IT was handling getting all of the Bungie employees to be able to work comfortably from home. Yeah, that one uh, engineer may have had to have pulled the whole repository of like 150 gigs. Some people, that's going to be a reality. Some studios had the ability to say, okay, well, we'll buy a a brand new external hard drive, get the repository on that for however many people would need it, and then ship that off to people. Like, I got a KVM switch. Sneaker net that shit. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, there's solutions for that. It really just depended on the bandwidth of IT. IT was the one who was absolutely hit hardest. Most artists I know... um, they're usually doing their own independent work anyway. So they're set up to do that work. Most designers I know, they have uh, a number of different engines and building tools that they're building on stuff at home just to play with things. Most people don't even put their their work down when they get home um, because they're still working on things or they want to work on things. Uh, So working from home, Gaming was one of the few industries that maybe saw a small hiccup overall, just making that switch. But for me personally, I was not thrown off at all. My teams weren't thrown off at all. It was just, okay, we're working from home. So instead of having this meeting in the office, we're doing it on Google chat, Google me. 
okay, what we're missing a whiteboard. What are we using now? Okay, we're going to switch to Miro or um, there's a couple of other tools that are out there that people use as whiteboard that have like active collaboration. So you can see everyone's mouse pointers roaming around seeing what they're doing and they can share their screens and they can really kind of focus on what's important. We, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of interruptions really. Like my life personally got a whole lot better once I started working remote, like goodbye hour and a half long commute. Goodbye. Like having to chase people down at their desk. Oh, you're not at your desk. Okay. I'll come back in 10 minutes. That's like, no, I can see when you're interesting. So leave you a message. Like one for example, Nintendo, I don't know if you followed, but a lot of Nintendo games seem to have been thoroughly affected by COVID. And a lot of Japanese developers in general seem to have been affected by COVID a lot more. And I guess maybe I hadn't really thought about this until you were talking, but maybe that should be because in Japan, people are a lot less set up to work from home. Like just initially, I don't think people really have these like big setups at their houses. They really rely on being in the office, right? Yeah, I mean, PC gaming is in very small in japan right that's it's why consoles are so popular because real estate big houses just aren't a thing and so that real estate of a pc tower a desk multiple monitors all that kind of stuff that's a luxury by all means but a tv that's multi-purpose a console that's multi-purpose it all makes sense when it's like and why xbox even shifted to being the center of your living room as opposed to PlayStations, this is where you game. Xbox was trying to be like appealing to as many different demographics as possible. Right. Yeah, I I just thought it was interesting because you were saying it was really easy for you guys and maybe it was easy for a lot of American studios, but I definitely saw like, for example, Nintendo got hit super hard. Guilty Gear Strive, the Arxis games, they had like a ton of COVID trouble. So really interesting. I'm, I'm not really familiar with a lot of how the studios in Japan are set up, but I can imagine like between Nintendo setup where like a lot of their actual quality and bug testing happens in Japan while like Nintendo here in Seattle is just like giving testers and telling them play this game, soak test this game to make sure that it's not going to, be crashing your hardware and saw like your equipment and like just being overall buggy being a bad experience like that's what a lot of the testing is out here uh but they're they're actually testing the quality of the game they're actually making sure that the features in the game are working uh so a lot of those game developer studios in japan i have to rely on what i perceive and when you look at how Nintendo has treated online gaming in general, you have to imagine the infrastructure of employees not really being that strong to be able to work from home. Totally. Well. No, yeah. I mean, Japan, Japanese companies in general have like a very different online gaming problem to solve because everyone's solve. so close together. They don't need to worry about the travel, like this long distances, this bad latency, all of that. So they have a really, it's really interesting to see like Japanese fighting games, especially is something I follow fighting games very closely. And like the difference between their net code needs in Japan and in America is crazy. And the fact that they're only now realizing like, Oh, if we want our game to sell well and do well outside of Japan, we actually need to have good net code that doesn't just work when you're like close to each other is, is very interesting. It's a very different world. Um, yeah. 
So I sort of want to transition, I guess, from we talked about COVID and I mean, games, Japanese games at least got delayed during COVID and being a producer, I'm sure you have opinions about game delays. Yeah. Like you talked about yeah. how you are responsible for setting deadlines, meeting deadlines, stuff like that. So I guess what's your what's your overall opinions on game delays? Like, have you ever had to delay a game and what was that like? And how do you think studios can do better to not have to delay games or is it something you're okay with? Like, what do you think? I think delay is usually a consequence of poor planning. I think that it's also the right call in the majority of times. It's, it's unfortunate that delays are given sometimes smoke and mirrors for the reasoning, like, like uh, calling out COVID, like, that could be a smoke and mirrors delay for any number of titles. Uh, but it could also actually be the reality. Like any Japanese studio is just like, yeah, we weren't set up to work from home. It is COVID. Uh, but it's usually the right call. Uh, there's a Miyamoto quote, like it's, it's something along the lines of like a late game, a late game can be good. An early game is forever bad. Yeah, like you, a you broken. Make, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so it, it get, delays make sense for me. Uh, I think that I actually do appreciate Blizzard's histor historical position of soon, of not committing to a time frame because that disappointment is palpable. It does have a business impact. I think that delays happen when teams aren't fully honest with themselves or with them with each other uh the, to me that's there's a, a severe lack of candid communication about what the problems are or leadership chooses to ignore it uh there i've certainly experienced some of those things I, and it's it's different every time there is a different reason and usually an understandable reason why a delay has to happen. Problem is, is most studios don't learn from that. And I, I like GDC is so valuable for that reason. And you get developers able to share their stories one-on-one -on -one with each other and be able to say, God, I had this problem and I learned from it. Most studios probably don't take enough opportunity to learn from their mistakes. They're usually too focused on, okay, we did this thing. It sucked On to the next thing and we'll <laughs> and fix it along the way. We'll say sort that. of, yeah, <laughs> but it's usually not a full commitment. And the, sometimes there is a, uh, like a team rebellion being like, no, we're not going to do this until X, Y, and Z conditions are, are met. Are so actually I was curious about that. Like, have you ever been in a situation where like maybe the team is like, we need to delay this shit. Like we need more time. Like uh, this isn't going to happen within the deadline. And then it's communicated. And two things. One is you don't get the delay. Like, have you had that before happen? Or like, you know, upper man, it's like what you just said, upper management's not listening to the teams. Um, and then two, or the other route is you get the delay. Like, what does that feel like when, as the, maybe from the, the, the boots on the ground, like you said, are communicating, we need more time, then you get time. My 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 guess would be it's like a big sigh of relief. It, it increases trust in the leadership. Like, how does that work? 
It's definitely it's definitely been like when the team requests that extension and they explain why and they can prove why it's meaningful and when you get that back, it's like the the chief staff believing in their team, like validating what they're saying because they are that much closer to things than you. When senior leadership doesn't listen, it depends on the communication that comes through because maybe they say, look, we hear your concerns, but for X, Y, and Z values, these were the goals of this release. These were the goals of this update. This feature that you're worried about doesn't play into those into a critical margin. And so we're going to push forward. The one, the teams that communicate the best and the most often and about the reason usually don't have delays because those delays, those right. weren't or like the team is the only one who's aware of them and you work towards those dates. But when there's a public date and the team goes, ah, we got a delay and the leadership goes, nope, whatever. Like that usually causes attrition, (laughs) attrition, attrition for sure. It causes a lot of, spin up conversations it causes oh, things that will last culturally for months right sometimes years and so that can become a sticky situation when it's a repeated problem and that you're never actually able to catch up to what the employees are expecting cuz and this is by no means like this might even just highlight how difficult it is to be a CEO or one of those chief deciders of just being able to say, I hear you, but we still have to do this. They have that person individually has to wear that responsibility. Right. And we've always uh, said it would be crazy to be in the room where like, you know, those decisions were made like for cyberpunk, for example, I imagine there were some crazy stuff happened. I can't even imagine. I, I would not want to be in that room like that. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a passive listener with no stake in the game, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it would have been interesting. And absolutely right. That would have been a, a conversation for the decade. But like that, that should have been recorded. And that should be a GDC conversation. I was just going to say, yeah. Uh, what, what's the... Um, the Star Trek simulation where there is no possible outcome, uh, something Maru. Uh, sure. I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And, and also to, I see some master Amos in chat saying how a uh, recent Minecraft delay means that the leadership wasn't, wasn't, was lacking at Mojang. And I know he's joking, but just to say the, what the situation you just explained really highlights that it's complicated, right? Because if the team is not, as you said, reporting candidly where the status of things are at, then the people making the decisions on deadlines and about whether things can be hit, they they don't have good information to work right. off of. By the and time so, the team's reporting that it's going to be late, it's already too late for them to make alter a decision, right? Yeah. And I mean... All of these delays could have a real reason between them. Like suddenly, oh, someone wins the lotto. They quit. Oh, they were yeah. your, they were your chief uh, cave algorithmic engineer. So now your caves are making no progress whatsoever. Oh, right. who is trained up on that system? 
No one. Okay, what documentation do we have? The, oh, he didn't keep any documentation. Oh, he was he was working remote, and it's on his personal computer, and we didn't know that. Hey, okay, we'll send him a message. Can we get that documentation? Oh, that hard drive died. I, I don't have it anymore. Like, crap. Like, those, those kind of weird things happen all the time. So it's not necessarily a, a failure of leadership. I, I don't know too much about that update. I know it was split up into two updates and they released some stuff now and the the other half is uh, due out in like the holiday season. Right. And so like last year they overpromised, and this year they're under delivering. Uh, it could entirely be that it's ready to go, but someone on the marketing side said, hey, you don't have anything going out in December. What happens if we split this this release into two different things? And then right. everyone goes, yeah, it shouldn't be a big deal. But so, then, oh, man. How, yeah, that, uh, that comes from that is just like... I just want to know, like, how often do you think the public messaging about delays or these kinds of decision is significantly different from, like, the private reasons for the decision? Do you really think that happens often? Yeah. I do. I, I really do. And I have I have one example of this uh, specifically. One of my old oh, coworkers. He's pulling up his sources. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm pulling this From up. From that deleted hard drive. <laughs> there was an article about Guild Wars 2 expansion coming out. And th- there's all this detail about the features, everything that's going into it. But the headline that they put out on their social media to link to this article is Guild Wars 2 expansion End of Dragons has been delayed. It is the most minor detail in the entire article. It is barely a a mention. And that is the headline that media chooses to lapse on because delays get attention. It's not about the features. It's not about supporting that community or getting more people into that. It's about the the headline and the glitz and glam that comes from that. Yeah, it'll get more people to read the article and get familiar about the article. But Guild Wars 2 is, and that, that team and that studio is not about deceiving players to get attention they make a quality fucking game and they care about that game a lot. So for this outlet to do that for drama is pretty disrespectful to the team. Gotcha. Okay. That was, that was the, uh, that wasn't the initial angle. I thought you were going to go with it. That's cool though. Thank you for uh, like that, that perspective. I was kind of thinking like, how many times do you think what's, studios communicate to be the reason for the delay is actually not like 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 halo infinite saying that like covid affected their development or whatever like that kind of thing or something like that right 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 right. i i think that spin is still definitely a part of the industry marketing is marketing whether you're talking gaming toothpaste cigarettes Right, weed, whatever. It spin is spin. If if it benefits them, they'll do it. Hmm. Fair enough. That's good to know. Especially, (laughs) imagine if like half of the executive staff just walked out. Do you think they would want to communicate that now, or 
in six months when as they have a negotiation and a contract to let those people roll out at quietly and have them under very strict NDA. Like that's more likely going to be the case. So they will they will lock down individual sources to protect the studio, the IP, the game. Everything. That makes sense. Yeah, that's, makes sense. that's more valuable than the individuals. Do you have another question on this front, Anthony, or do we well, want to transition? I, yeah, because I feel like we're kind of tugging in this, uh, touching on this. One of we've we often have conversations on quality time regarding game design topics, and then that subsequently a lot of time leads into like manifestations of those design implement, you know, implementations of those design ideas, if you will, blah blah. blah. And a lot of times we get into this conversation of how a lot we feel that the um, the design, the purity of design, maybe, and in a lot of ways, the novelty and uh, risk taking in design on the indie space, a lot of times totally outclasses the risk taking and novelty of design choices in the AAA space. Um, obviously, the, the 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 big thing right there is like AAA endeavors are a fuck ton of money and. Um, that's a huge reality around how risky you want to be and the, the things you, you decide to go after. Um, is there any way that you feel like, I don't know. Uh, first of all, do you agree? Do you feel like the AAA space somehow in, in regards to the purity of the, uh, I, I like the way I would sum it up is that the, in, we feel like the indie studios have these more pure novel designs, but the AAA studios have a fuck ton of polish right? right like the polish is just outstanding right indie um, studios are making unique experiences while triple a studios are making polished experiences yeah. first of all do you agree and do you think like is there do you have an opinion on like maybe a way that somehow the triple a space could get better in that regard or it, you you just think like it won't <laughs> i think that a lot of what you're saying, AAA polish is real and indie unique is very real. And a lot of AAA are starting to figure out or try and figure out how to harness that unique experience in the way that they want it. And I think that the the meeting in the middle of that right now is co-development. Ubisoft is doing this a lot with their games where they're like, okay, this studio in Western Canada, you're going to make melee combat. The studio in the UK, mm. you're going to make our open world netcode work. Like, and they're shipping off individual features to create specialties for a grand vision. That grand vision is then going to be a very unique experience because no one else has it but it then uses that AAA power from the resources that they have of having hundreds, if not thousands of people work on it, which is the the grand promise of Star Citizen, right? <laughs> of The game which will never be released, yes. <laughs> that's never going to be released because they didn't actually have the means to do it. That right. game is going to come like 2050, and there will be 20 other games that are participating in that same level of scope. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know that about Ubisoft, but it makes sense to like, if you're going to try and make more unique aspects in your game, then like an indie studio develops a whole game and makes it unique. But if you can get like an indie style studio within your group to develop a mechanic in your game, then it's likely that mechanic will be developed in that same unique way. That That's really yeah. interesting and cool. That's a, I didn't know about that. 
Yeah, so co-development is kind of the latest and greatest method that a lot of studios are doing. Ubisoft has that take on it, but others are doing... And you hear about this a lot from uh, Bethesda, like the Doom Eternal game. Certain parts of it were made by different studios. Call of Duty, like they just... uh, Like Activision really just said, everything over on this side that's not Blizzard is now making Call of Duty. Well, there's like six different studios there. Three of them are doing the rotation, the annual iteration and rotation of Call of Duty titles. But those other studios are then supplementing those things and they're constantly building the latest and greatest. So you don't. And so you get this ability to deliver a huge quantity of the latest and greatest regularly. So they're really able to push bounds regular because they have so many resources to do that. And but at that point, you're getting an annual iteration. How much progress can you make? How much of a unique right. experience can you make? Which is why that rotation of like World War II to future to modern and going back through that cycle creates a really cool experience. And it's something unique because they're able to take brand new design experiments and user experiences and iterate on that in their own way so it keeps them relevant keeps them unique in some regard and it keeps that ip that idea of there will always be a call of duty available that's really smart business making it it so i agree with you that it's smart business making but I don't know. Do you think that smart business making is always making better games, though, necessarily, right? Like, because, like, I, I agree with you that they're releasing a Call of Duty game every year and it's selling well, but I'm not, but I don't think those games are really innovating very much. And so, that, and that's kind of my point. Like, yeah. annual iterations just don't do that. Madden has been that for a decade and a half, right? Uh, but you, yeah, you're not going to get a Hades. level game in from a studio even potentially like blizzard because they know where their their money is already spent yeah and they're committed to those things they don't have room for those other things they have they'll have their r&d projects and prototypes all spinning up and doing things but it's always going to be with the potential of being this grand triple a experience okay yeah so to to some extent Xbox is playing with that, right? With their indie showcase and supporting indies because they want all those little studios to give them an indie scene to make it almost seem like the Xbox uh, library is very much that AAA polish with the indie appeal. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there will be different takes on it, but it's I don't think it will ever be quite the idea where Ubisoft, uh, Blizzard, Riot are doing indie games with those wholly unique experiences. Riot is probably the most publicly uh, acknowledging that they're now publishing third party, stu- uh, third, third party games that can be used in their library. So like you get the action RPG that's coming or the more JRPG style game that's coming out that's set in the league of legends world. They're not riots, not working on it, but they have, a heavy influence on what's okay and what's not. So you might be seeing more of that indie style, unique experience coming through with a well-known IP probably in the next decade or so. Hmm. You'll see that. 
which is exciting. Yeah, like, um, cool, cool, right on. Um, uh, Skyler, were you gonna say something? In no, the no, no, no. I'm good. I, I'm good. I'm good. Do you, do you have something you want to transition to? Well, no. I just, um, we can. I had a relate related to the indie situation, if you will. At while. Like indie games are getting better. Let me let me let me let me put it that way. The level of polish coming out of indie games continues to increasingly impress me. I think Skylar would say the same. I mean, playing fucking Hades. I mean, I, Hades is a weird kind of indie. Like Hades that's not is like barely an indie in game anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but re- the the commoditization of game making tech, right? Like Unreal Engine, you can pull down. Unreal Engine 5 is fucking mind-blowing. And the fact that you can pull it down and get, like, no royalty for the first million dollars of revenue is insane, like, uh, compared to whatever, 10, 20 years ago especially. So as the technology accessible to indies and smaller studios, you know, continues to increase, um, and in some ways maybe the level of polish the the level of polish between those indie experiences and the AAA experience start to diminish or become less so like how do you think game studios will be able to differentiate themselves into the future um i feel it, it ties into this question about like these indie unique game design level things i i don't know personally we've talked about it before it seems in some kind of ways that the market gets tired of like the same shit over and over and they're looking for that new like wrinkle the amount of awesome games available are just it's crazy and they continue to increase so i don't know what do you think is the key for like a studio to focus on to carve out a spot for them in the world as they in this in this continually evolving especially in technology space gaming industry if i had to say one thing it's always going to be flexibility and fluidity not being attached to your previous success to be nostalgic and to be complacent. If you really want to stay on top, you have to be conventionally and constantly reinventing yourself. The way tools are going, it's easier for smaller and smaller teams to be creating grand experiences and great experiences, unique experiences. But as it gets easier for individuals and small teams to do that, you're going to get a huge quantity of those things. So then it really comes down to who's the best of the best. And I'll use another Gary V. It's not about who's first. It's about who's best. And in a constant evolution, best is constantly being reinvented. I mean, I think we talked about Hades, right? Supergiant is a great example of that, right? Like all of their games have been completely different games. And Hades is like the most different of any game they've made so far. It like as far as their previous titles have very little to do with Hades, except for that they were top down. So like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I, you're totally right. And so like, if you, maybe you get a Hades being able to be made by three people in 2029 right. or with 20,000 computer generated voice lines that required no actual actors to record them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I went, I went to GDC, what was that, like 2018 or something like that, 2017 maybe, and it, Amazon had this awesome booth, like 30 different year, ways to use Lumberjack, and one of them was 
tying the Alexa AI to an in-game character that had procedural mouth mouth movement. And it could just use Alexa to generate its dialogue, basically? Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. When you think about where technology is going, how much more infinitely better using Alexa is right now than it was three or five years ago, like that becomes a huge weight lifted off of a development team. When there's procedural audio libraries, you never have to go out and worry about recording your own audio again. Your audio is shrinking. How many people play games with their own music playing? How Anthony is going to be is depressed, but the answer is a lot. (laughs) I mean, I do too. Uh, You (laughs) do too, even though you love video game music. Yeah. Here for me personally, like there's, there's two games that stand out with music and what makes them great. Half-Life one. And it has like all of three riffs in it. That's it. Like when you first get your suit, Oh, goosebumps all full. Oh, I'm Gordon Freeman all over again. Right. (laughs) Uh, in Quake 2, Nine Inch Nails soundtrack the entire time through, gritty, hard rock. It's not this bland grays and greens and browns and stuff. It's like 1996 kind of grays, greens, and browns. <laughs> 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 like pretty action and everything. Like you you get that adrenaline pumping and everything. But like soundtracks were huge for like Madden and everything. And it set off a whole lot of experiences. But those in-game moments when you have music, super minor or even distracting in some places. But you and like in PvP games, multiplayer games where you have to hear that footstep, you do not want music. And with multiplayer being a key defining genre and mode that every game has to have, how are you really going to fork over like? Five hundred thousand dollar to get a a composer to come in and make twenty minutes of musical tracks that ninety percent of your player base, which could be measured, disables music. Right? No, spend that money. That's five hundred thousand dollars you could be spending on five designers, three designers, uh, two two senior designers, and a director. Like resources could be used much more efficiently, and so design or teams have to make that decision but as things get more procedurally available and experiences are panned out people are going to be throwing out betas like you you already get early access right and some of those things are super sketchy but the ones that (laughs) suddenly get a lot more attention you could throw out something that's as basic as minesweeper but if it picks up it picks up and so you get small teams throwing out idea after idea after idea Again, it's the Gary V thing. Throw out as much content as you can that is valuable to your audience. Figure out what's the most valuable and develop that idea. Right. Yeah, that's something we've definitely experienced making our game. We've had a bunch of internal alpha tests and like every time we're just like, oh, cool. Okay, things should be well, at least the first couple of times it was like, oh, we really need to like make a completely different thing here. That was like we never intended to have. And it's like, okay, I guess that's that's really what people like. And we've been really trying to approach it from that way, too, because I think you're totally right. Like if people don't find it fun, it doesn't matter how passionate you are about it. Exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. Amy, I want to say it's Amy Jo Kim. She has a book. Um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the book. Oh, I'm so sorry, Amy. But the book is, you know, what I'm talking about Skylar. Are you, are you I'm, looking I'm, it up? I got you. It's you this, okay. Oh. This book, um, strongly has influenced how we're going about making the game in that it, it, it it's, it's more or less the idea of like game thinking, well, I, game thinking. God, thank you. Is, uh, I highly recommend if you're trying to develop a game nowadays, identify the target market of the kind of game you're trying to make and iterate on the idea with them so that by the time you're done, you don't just fucking, Oh, I, I spent three years making this. I hope somebody likes it. It's like, no, right. You develop something that those people who will subsequently buy it will actually want, you know? Um, so Anyway, yeah, what, yeah, being that, that's a cool answer, being flexible. Yeah, yeah, this space is just, I, I can't imagine what a game dev from the 90s must think of the space now. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I, here's the great thing I've worked with some people who have been in the industry since the 80s. And what, what do they think? Are they <laughs> like culture think? shocked? Yeah, what's the... so to, are they both? afraid? I, I want to also know. <laughs> them are still in the industry and both of them have held kind of very one has held general manager position so control over an entire studio and another one has been a uh like essentially an art director or like a senior leader of large numbers of artists to come in and create content for a team and they they've evolved with the industry they understand the needs and they've they've basically rolled with all the punches that have come up and they're just like yeah in the 80s we didn't know we were what we were doing now there's a better sense of how to get things done well and we just do it that way now because it makes more sense it makes much more it makes our lives a lot easier than it used to be like uh, funny story. One of one of my previous general managers, he used to do. This was back in the eighties. He used to do part time QA testing during the day, and then at night he would go bartending. He thought <laughs> part time QA was a good use of his time because he got to play games all day and then <laughs> make his real money being a bartender. <laughs> and then here Man, he must have made shit. <laughs> And I mean, then 30 years later, he's he's gone through a career of producing a number of EA sports titles, making decisions about iterations, uh, multi-million decision, multi-million dollar decisions, and then gets to head up a studio for a uh, worldwide renowned publisher and try and shake things up like that's a really cool experience for him to have gone through beginning to end and uh, when i knew him he was near near the end of his career he he might be still kind of doing consultation stuff but like he he's still very much into the business like he's not jaded about where games were and where they are now it's like he he was in it for games which was really cool that's awesome right. all right right on cool. right on um okay I I originally found out about you, Joe, because you were mentioned, retweeted, shouted out somewhere by 1.37 p.m., which is a the way I would describe the way I reason why I know about 1.37 p.m. is because Gary V. 
Like it's Gary V. It's the Gary V. Connection. And I, there's some things that when, actually, I think you're followed by Gary V. On Twitter. I'm jealous as fuck. Yeah. But I think, yeah, <laughs> God, uh, one day that's I'll, Anthony's I'll, dream. See if I can. If I happened, like I immediately, like I think I was taking a shower when I heard the notification, and then like I got out and. I, I saw the notification and Gary V is now following you. Like, no way. And <laughs> like, I ran out of my bathroom, ran across the house, just stark naked and just be like, does that say what I think it says? And like, Gary, I'm following you. Yeah. But so did you, so do you, uh, how I mean, did that, do you have, <laughs> do you have a relationship with the 137 T? This will spill into a couple of different questions, but like what, what's that relationship all about? Just, ended up you guys met one time maybe with some people from the team or because where this is going is like um such a huge part of like what we're trying to do uh as a studio even before honestly finding out about gary v was inspired by the like the way hex from optic puts out content which was just this general notion of like the the story behind making a game and the people and the relationship with the people who are making it in it's similar to like the relationship and the story behind the esports grind and all that stuff is like just as compelling, if not more so than the actual product itself. Right. Uh, it, like the human story behind these things. And uh, it was back in 2014 when I originally thought, like, why doesn't a game studio do this? And the game studio is historically, I don't know, but I, I feel like. It's been getting better recently, especially now as social media continues to grow and its influence in our society and especially with the gamer demographic continues to grow. This has changed a bit, but uh, it's often so, so lacking in transparency, so much so lacking in candidness, candor, um, and that that's a that's something that I feel like is is part of the way part of a way that like right now it seems like the creative identity of a game you up for a lot of people especially in the triple a space sometimes gets more associated with the publisher than the actual like developers making the game you know what i mean um so where this gary v what's your involvement with him like how do you feel about that this idea of like game studios building a more personal connection with their community and um and, and evolve and, and moving forward this ways yeah so i mean think about this like social like youtube started in what 2006 2006 i believe yeah so people are still wrapping their heads around that influencers are a thing <laughs> We're like 14 years later uh and so businesses are starting to come around to hey we should do the social media thing. <laughs> this is the slow uptake of things. Like Gary talked about how like Facebook used to be the thing. And like when it came out, when it was brand new, it was locked to college users, college students only. And then it went public. And then Gary V's grandmother effect kick in. Everyone's <laughs> grandmother got a Facebook. And so then the demographic changed social media, TikTok. Now it's advocate or really hitting that demographic of like, seven to 11 year olds. That's the youngest age bracket that things have been hitting. No one is still really taking advantage of 
being able to get to younger and younger, younger and younger demographics so that they can be a part of your IP, the part of your product from that time. Think about my connection to Warcraft. I played Warcraft when I was seven or eight years old. And now I'm going to go work for fucking Blizzard. And that's been like dream position. That means more emotionally to me than it's going to mean to someone who was 20 when Warcraft 2 came out because they're already decided, they've already right. got set in, all that kind of stuff. Social media and not telling the story of how a game is made is, a, in my opinion, a huge missed opportunity. It's a, the idea of being that early adopter of a new technology. It's not early, but it's early in the context of when other businesses are getting into it being able to go out there and tell your honest truth of how a game is made, what is going on, that would fundamentally change the conversation of when a delay is announced because then everyone understands where that came from. You would be getting feedback of, hey, you should just cut this or, hey, you should just delay this as soon as that first video drops because player feedback of they know how games are played And they can do that theorizing in their heads about how a game plays out or how a system works. It's it's we're not quite to the point of insulting the player base, but in 10 to 20 years when gaming is hitting people at at an average age that the average gamer is in their 50s or 60s. And then you stop paying attention to what those people are saying because gaming is then just like indoctrinated into brain space. You're ignoring something that is just fundamentally human or fundamentally North American or European about whatever genre or game that you're making. Talk to people and be honest about what you're going through. And that's also going to ripple in your culture internally of being honest and being able to say, you could go up here to, to your director and say, hey, look, this is shit. We should delay this. We should run this plan. Run that up the chain to your producer. And then suddenly you're having a real conversation where a lower on the rung person is then empowered to have that conversation. And what are they empowering? They're in player, empowering that player base to speak up and give that feedback. We we want player feedback. We want community feedback about the game they want to play. Getting more information early is better. That's why you see mobile titles being prototyped and like limited released in Canada, Iceland and Australia and various markets in Southeast Asia, because they want to see how that game plays out and they're getting that data earlier and earlier. But social media is that way and is is a way forward where you could do that openly and honestly without having to do a full release. Right. Really yeah. share, share any bit of your game really. Well, and I have to I have to bring it up given the context Skylar Skylar's going to sigh at me, but I oh. feel like another another angle at this right that is super ridiculously early right now, but that has a play in this idea if you will in this execution is the nft space um you 
like you're it, it's still super early. I know that you're interested in like some of the projects, especially obviously the Gary V one uh, of which I've said before, I got a V friend. I fucking sold a bunch of other stupid stocks that I had and I snagged a core. But uh, like, um, what do you think so too? I'm not only going to limit this to NFT. Some people in chat have been mentioning AR, VR. Like, the, are, what kinds of technologies do you think can really help push this conversation forward uh, or the execution of these ideas that we're talking about right now forward into the future? I mean, right now, we like, the whole Gary V V friends thing is super new. Anyone who's getting involved in that space is touching a, a technology that very few people are going to touch over the next five years until there is almost like that killer app that's needed on your phone or on like a console or whatever. You need to have a reason to purchase it. There's no killer app for VR. The price point is still kind of above uh, that of what a general consumer would take or be able to really purchase. So as these things keep being talked about, cryptocurrency being talked about now is way more than it was three years ago. That is everyone's conscious awareness updating and being like, oh, this thing's not going away. I should pay attention to that. After cryptocurrency is going to be NFT, you'll probably see that, what, three to five years from now of really picking up. So any early adopters, just like how you saw people who had Dogecoin or Ethereum or Bitcoin when it was $2 a piece and now it's 40,000 or whatever it is now. And they're like, yeah, I'm a Bitcoin millionaire. It's that early adopter mentality where their gamble paid off. NFTs, where you see that a community is being built before there's that NFT, before there's all that extra stuff, that community suddenly means that much more. Uh, I think that any game that comes out using NFT is going to have to, one, already have a really strong community, and two, have a damn good game on their hands. Because any like the games that I've tried out right now, they're not great. Like they are the NFT related ones. Yeah. NFT related right. games. Not great. The quality isn't quite there. The polish they're missing X, Y, or Z pieces, all that kind of stuff. The experience really isn't that much or you're left doing a lot of simulation, a lot of waiting or like a couple button clicks. And right. there's, it's almost like playing the, the market on in. Wow. Like, okay, <laughs> going to enjoy that. There's a demographic for that, but if I can be playing a racing game where my I have that NFT of a car and that car then gets me into car shows for free or at a discount, but then in the game, I can do a pink slip race and I'm the one racing, not a simulation, not based off of the stats or my individual like AI tracked lap times. And then it represents me in that race and simulating it like you would a, a Madden game. Once we get to that point where it's me racing and racing for that pink slip where I'm going to get another car, that's where it's going to get interesting, yeah. where I have that ownership and where there's that ex intentional and additional value to what that NFT means. That's where it's going to be a big deal. Uh, I think very few. I, I don't think there's an indie studio out there that could really, truly pull that off. 
unless they have really good marketing or they catch that wave, just like how WoW caught that wave when it came out. Blizzard didn't expect it to be that big or that good or really know. It wasn't even really that good when it first came out, but it was just the timing was so good, right? That it just like and in in comparison to the other titles like EverQuest at that time, the polish and the quality was insane. And so they caught the wave. And I think an NFT project could absolutely catch the wave. You see that with with the, the monkey yacht club. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not using that one. I know that's not the right name, but the Monkey Yacht Club will go with it from now. Like that's a really interesting group. V Friends and the plans Gary V has announced for that. That should be a blueprint. And so anyone who's going to go through and make an NFT game needs to execute on the level of V Friends right. plus right. what it means to have a game. No, totally. You've been different so much of game development is okay are we going to be best in class or are we going to be industry standard are we going to be something unique and new where where are we going to put our fucks and so it's very much the same thing are we going to be industry standard are we going to be the best are we going to offer something new everything with nft is going to be a new or unique experience yeah most of them are not going to be good experiences. <laughs> Most of them will not make it beyond a short lifespan. Most of them won't even return value to the people who buy them. Um, I think there is. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to suck for a while. <laughs> yeah, Anthony uh, had a private. Anthony and I had a private conversation about NFT games, and I, I totally agree with you that I think the reason I hate NFTs is because. Uh, or at least I have hated NFTs is that right now the space is literally just like you're buying this thing that has no unique value at all to it. Like it's, it's, I could literally, the bites are exactly the same. I could do anything I want and have it right. But what to make a real good NFT game, if you can bring out the like emotional connection and the personality of that unique thing that you alone own, that's when NFT games will actually be good. Like you were saying, if you can race your own car and it's unique and you can get a new car, even from that, that's where it becomes like, Oh, this is a cool space. One conversation I've had with the animator at three, four, three, sorry, I didn't catch it there that he, he, Will, Will Waltz was talking about like, yeah, what if you had this game that the community collectively played like one level at a time where you tokenize the state of the game every step of the way and then you resell it and there's an auction and like you could even redistribute a chunk of the auction to like charity and stuff like that. You're really going like places, you know, it's kind of like sky's the limit, kind of like you, you said, but the execution's got to be good. Sorry, go ahead. I mean, think about like that car example in an NFT. Like if you were to build that up and build it up and literally break it down, what if the transmission was an NFT? Right. Individual parts being NFTs. Individual parts. And then think you went through the process of whatever the game systems are to go through and be able to craft that thing or find that thing or work with the crew to get that item. And you start understanding the effort that goes into it. Now you're starting to look at that metaverse idea of where you can work real time in a game to generate something of value that changes the way someone else interacts in a digital space. 
you're going to start seeing people work in digital spaces for digital objects that create real world value. Right. I mean, it's like the next logical extension of uh, like Steam Workshop monetization, right? Like people who make Dota skins and stuff like that. Exactly. Dota skins. I mean, Second Life was a thing back in 2000 where we're creating pieces of whatever digital things that they owned back then. That's crazy. But then you also have all the people who were doing like account leveling in all the various games and right. sold farming. <laughs> all the all the illegal activity. Suddenly that then becomes a trade. That's something that then becomes a legit pathway to making a career or making a business yeah. out of something. That's that's kind of crazy, but that's where NFTs are going. That's where the whole metaverse idea goes is like you're starting to cross bounds. Anyone who hasn't read it, you have to read Ready Player One to start understanding where things might start going. Don't don't do the movie. The movie's the movie's an action flick. Read the book. And then come to appreciate Rush a little bit more. Then go listen to Rush. So um so we're getting towards the end of our time uh, for today, but I feel like we've had so many interesting conversations. We could easily have like 10 podcasts with you and still have stuff to talk about. I, I, I like to think I'm a, I'm a tinfoil hat wizard in this space. I could go off on crazy conspiracies, crazy <laughs> theories, everything. I, oh, I, shit. I, well, I, I am taking you up on that offer. We will have you on again strictly to talk conspiracy. <laughs> I'm in for any, any podcast theme with, with, with Joe. He's great. Yes, um, anytime you want. Come on, of course. Yeah. Hundred percent. But we do have a few final, uh, more fun out of the out of left field questions to ask you before we end that we have to ask every podcast guest. Um, I think we'll just start with a uh, simple question that people might be curious about. Um, just like, what do you have? Like top top three favorite games, maybe of all time. Uh, okay. So top three favorite games, or, or whatever will... top whatever you can feel like you can c- construct. Top okay. one is fine too. <laughs> okay, top top three JRPGs because there <laughs> there has to be a top three. Uh, it's Tales of Fantasia, Seiken Densetsu three, or uh, I think there's a new Steam release of that called Trials of Mana. Uh, if you can get the r- original SNES ROM, Seiken Densetsu three, phenomenal. Uh, so that's Secret of Mana three. Uh, <laughs> we gotta get josh on here oh go ahead i know like there there's nothing compares to chrono trigger so tales of fantasia seeking densetsu 3 and chrono trigger if i had to, if, if i could have a, a tie or like a fourth place then it's final fantasy 7 huh uh, warcraft always be my number one MMO just because I mean, my handle comes from that recall is still a character. I still possess to this day from day one. Wow. Launch. Uh, so I mean, that's warlock recall is me. I, I identify with so much, like some of my friends, they made a comic where they personified me as recall in their comic. Just, it's such an integral part of me or part of my, digital space i i feel it a lot um lux is getting too good (laughs) blowing up for some reason (laughs) 
uh, other games, goodness, um, uh, Arcanum. Like you can say whatever you want about Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate Two. Arcanum was a buggy pile, but the steampunk aesthetic, the writing to it was phenomenal. I went through with a half ogre character who was beaten by an ugly forest for like a minus two <laughs> character creation. And she he was so ungodly strong by the end of the game. He ran through the final dungeon completely armorless in his underwear and literally pummeled the final boss with his fists until he knocked him into the ground and just beat him to death. <laughs> Story and need to go through that. So Arcanum is definitely one of those games that I have to play whenever I can. Nice, that's awesome. Do you have more? You want more? Oh yeah, I, tribes. The Star Siege tribes. Whatever people are saying about the latest Battlefield game, like oh my god, 124 players. Fools! I was playing 256 <laughs> players tribes from a Caltech server in like 1993. <laughs> You want to talk grand strategy multiplayer? Go play that. Those are great answers. Okay, next one. My my favorite, and then I'll give Anthony the big final question. So my favorite thing to ask any person when I meet them, because it's just like always been the thing I love knowing about people, is your favorite food and your favorite animal. Favorite animal is a puffin. It, it flies, it can dive into the water, it fishes, it swims, it's got a sweet fucking beak. <laughs> all, all it's cute. Uh, like it's it's everything I'm not. Like it, it's graceful. It, <laughs> that's not me. It's colorful. I'm dark hair and pale complexion. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Seattle. Uh and favorite food. Mm, I have to go basically anything spicy i've been really experimenting with uh classic american barbecue lately my wife has been doing that a lot lately we've been getting into korean food so anything with gochujang in it is just phenomenal uh you know i'm, I'm a little bit of a weed person so the mouthfeel of some really chewy noodles and korean <laughs> spice you can't go wrong with it <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I've actually been really into Korean food lately, too. So I'm a super big supporter of that. <laughs> that thin cut beef with some gochujang like stew and like you just toss it. Uh, I'll, I'll show I'll throw you my recipe that we use for taebokki yeah. and it's just phenomenal. So 100% recommend it. It's something that I'll have even in the summer and just sweat it out whenever I'm eating it. <laughs> I would love that recipe. Yeah, send it over for sure. All right, Anthony, give him the big one. All right, Joe. Okay. Hit me. So if you had to choose one of the two following foods, the other one never exists. Like to be clear, it never existed before. It will never exist in the future and definitely stops existing now. You can only choose one to continue. Would you choose burgers or pizza? I have to go with burgers. Yes. Yeah, that one goes keeps existing. Yeah, that burgers. Yes. Keeps <laughs> I knew. I knew it's. There's too much good about Joe. I knew he'd say burgers. 
I mean, I, I have to say it, it's more flexible than pizza is. Like I, I have a dairy intolerance, so I can't have real cheese. Oh. Real cheese. Like when I think about pizza, I think about the opening scenes from the Ninja Turtles 2 movie when they're showing the thin slices and just the cheese stretching for a f- mile. Uh, I can't have that anymore. And dairy-free cheese isn't there yet. The flavor has gotten a lot better, but I don't get the ooey gooey stretchy cheese. So uh, burgers, on the other hand, impossible patties and like fast food, like Burger King now offers the impossible Whopper. I can now have fast food again. And then I can say, hold the cheese. So just way more flexible. My, My wife made this killer Korean glazed, impossible patty just the other night piled it with ginger and kimchi on top of it like it tasted better good yeah (laughs) and but red robin now also offers an impossible patty but i don't know like i like i'll take home any day especially with my wife cooking like damn but like so burgers burgers have flexibility i could make a pizza burger if i really wanted it and but i can't make if i make a burger pizza it just doesn't stand up good answer good answer great a great expose um do we have a patron (laughs) question today anthony uh let me let me check out i i will say that we had if not if we do have a question from the chat that several people backed up um, at the very beginning, and I wanted to ask it to you. We've kind of touched on topics surrounding it that I think answer it, but, but the question is, uh, we don't have a patron, by the by the way. Okay. We, the question is, um, why do you, th- there's been a lot of stuff going on recently regarding hackers screwing with games and the com- a lot of communities feeling that studios aren't prioritizing that more the question that was asked in stream it cut off and i don't have it anymore if you guys want to clarify stream as i'm saying this is what do why i got you it's it's why is anti-cheat difficult to implement and why aren't studios focusing it on much as much focusing on it as much as people think they should be fundamentally the game is built the way it is to make it work and the security that they have plugs certain holes but the, the fundamental way a game is made is going to have fundamental security issues. And so people will be able to exploit that. So by the time you plug a security hole, by the time you have a next another patch, the, ant, the hackers and the people who can break apart your game have discovered other vulnerabilities. So there's something more for them to exploit. So it just keeps going on and on. And it's just this really vicious cycle. And... I mean, think indie games. Think about some of those games that blow up. Apex Legends, no marketing spin up, just comes out of nowhere and millions of people play it. Unless they had any inclination that hacking, like they probably knew what their security weaknesses were, but they didn't know how players were going to expose it. So just like making a game, Hacking and creating cheats for it is just as a creative endeavor. So you might be able to plug a certain number of holes, but they may take a completely different take on how to create that hack. Just like how players play could play a game completely different 
than how the developers intend and it creates bugs it creates player exploits hackers just take that to another extreme of looking at the code um and an extreme that's even harder to safeguard against honestly exactly and it's always a temporary safeguard it's never a permanent one and uh valorant tried to work around that by give it making everyone give up kernel access yep it still hasn't stopped it. It's better. Valorant's pretty good. I, it's the best anti-cheat I've ever experienced, but... I mean, it, it's certainly better. It doesn't stop it because anyone can still make a temporary hack and go in and mess with it. And or like anyone who goes, okay, well, I'll grind up to whatever rank and then turn on my hacks. They have a history of not cheating and then performances that are in line with what is expected so then any anti-cheat is going to look at patterns and is this kind of in in line with the player's performance is this wildly abstract are they doing something that's crazy is there something in the the data that's being sent that is creating a flag it then just goes into that creative way that they manipulate the cheats the best cheaters won't have their hacks on all the time right yeah, I um, I, I think machine learning anti-cheat is definitely the future and could solve a lot of yeah. the problems we experience now, but we'll see when that happens. And I mean, even scaling the ability for viewers to jump into a game. Think about, this was a couple of weeks ago, Tim the Tapman and Courage, they were streaming Warzone play and they had engaged the developers like that morning saying, hey, we will highlight cheaters can you do something about it? And so sure enough, they had a cheater in their game. They're spectating this guy and then he gets banned mid match and they celebrate the more that we have people watching the game, drawing attention by the developers, the people who are actually able to legitimately call out hackers or give a team reason to look at someone live. Then you start getting live response. Part of the problem with the perception of developers don't do anything about hackers is that there's a time delay between a report happening when something is evaluated and then when action is taken or if action can even be taken. That's why like the League of Legends and Riot method of saying, hey, someone you reported for X and X behavior has been punished. Same with Rocket League. It makes you feel like you participated in that it makes you feel like the system is working it makes you feel like justice is done yeah i mean now we can talk about count up oh, go ahead sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i was just saying not every game has that not every game has the support to be able to handle that part of the part of the problem right now is that we don't have ai and machine learning to do this it all comes down to individual review yeah, I mean, we can yeah. talk about Counter Strike and over or Counter Strike and Dota implementing Overwatch anti cheat and anti like uh, harassment systems, right? Where they have real players just review matches or review replays, and those players are the ones deciding like, did this person harass people? Did this person cheat? And like, I mean, crowdsourcing your anti cheat is great if you have a player base big enough to make that work, but most games don't, right? And this is where going back to that conversation about code development could be a real big deal. Any uh, anyone who can come into your game, understand, break in, like understand your security risks, develop some some security for it, and then be on contract or uh, retained for a certain period of time to come through and fix things. 
and then you go through another group and then you start you're basically creating two-factor authentication for your security group because then you're not having that same security signature every time you release an update that then after it's been broken once it's easier to break again you rotate through like you change passwords every few months to make sure that your security is retained that way yeah. code development is a thing ai is another way uh having dedicated staff on your team is another way that's what a lot of people do right now a lot of companies right now expect that to be part of their customer service experience so then when you're getting why was i billed for this month also being handled by hey this guy's a cheater it creates a slowdown and a, a, a plug and getting through that kind of stuff. For sure. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on here, Joe. It was amazing to talk to you. I had a great time. I think Anthony probably feels the same. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. I, I love talking this stuff. I'm, uh, I'll keep talking until work tells me to stop talking. <laughs> Perfect. Well, <laughs> We are definitely having a Joe conspiracy quality time uh, in the future. I'd also love to hear about your experience at Blizzard after like, you know, a couple months of you being oh, yeah. there too. If you, if there's stuff you can talk about then, that would be really cool. I want to know. Yeah. After a few months at Blizzard, I want to know like how did their snacks, coffee, <laughs> like line up with like undead labs, coffee. So I, I hear that the Blizzard cafeteria is pretty killer. <laughs> oh, really looking forward to trying that okay awesome. i definitely want to hear about this blizzard cafeteria <laughs> uh, it, i won't be able to experience it at least until the new year so they're okay. still being they're still rolling out remote work and everything and being slow to get people back into the office but that's still the plan so nice looking okay. for one day we will know cool. well joe where can people find you if they want to find you if they want to find me, you can find me mostly at, at Warlock Recall on Twitter. Uh, I do have an Instagram, but the pandemic hasn't really been kind to me in that regard. Uh, I do plan on spinning up my podcast, or at least one of my podcasts again, The Summoning Hour. There's over 100 episodes still available on Anchor, uh, and it's actually available on many different podcast platforms. Uh you can just search for the summoning hour podcast the first 20 or so episodes were actually interviews with former co-workers and game developers that i've worked with and then after that i got on a huge kick of collegiate esports uh and so i started talking to a lot of collegiate uh esport clubs and varsity programs and learning their strategies their troubles their problems what kind of forms they were taking on and where that whole ecosystem was. So huge conversations going back to 2018, I think. So uh, 100 episodes or so on that one. That one was a lot of fun. If you were really into Collegiate Rainbow Six, you can go back and listen to some of the episodes we did on uh, Check Your Six, which was another podcast I did. Um, but that one is going to be more historical than anything else. The summoning hour will have a, a return. Awesome. You well, heard it here. Yeah. First. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. That's awesome. Yes. If you are uncultured like me and you're listening to this on audio, recall is spelled R A K A U L. Mm. Correct. So warlock recall. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I was like, oh, hey, Joe, like, what's your handle, Warlock Rakaul? He's like, it's Rakaul. 
Uh, where can people find uh, oh go ahead joe i was going to say maybe that's the actual proper way of pronouncing it but like i i've read so many fantasy books and like i made up my own spelling and made up your sounds cooler yeah i i I like to think so but i think so there you go all right anthony where can people find us you can find us at KOKoalaEntertainment.com. There you can find links to all our social media. Most Im- Look, first of all, if you like giveaways and you're listening to this, we give away shit every three weeks on Instagram and on Discord. And Discord is especially important as you will find in the Discord not only a bunch of savage, funny people, <laughs> but you will also find the first beginnings of the Uh, lore of our upcoming game for PC and Xbox. Yes, we are a game developer. Yes, we are developing a game for PC and Xbox. And you can experience the first inklings of that lore, the first succulent tidbits of it by playing our idle game that directly leads you to real world giveaways with your, uh, uh, where you have a chance at winning free stuff. Also be on the discord in like the next like four weeks max, I would say it's a very cool shit will be there. I just demoed some stuff to Anthony earlier today that's very exciting so you can tell skyler it's one of the few things that i've ever probably told him first time i loved and was so hyped for it's true (laughs) anthony's the king of like aggressive code well you haven't reviewed the code yet so we'll see once you look at the code code. (laughs) (laughs) but uh it is exciting times are coming uh this way on the discord and also Joe himself is in there. Do you want to like mm-hmm. ping him? You want to talk to him? I know where to find him. <laughs> uh, come, come join and chat with us. This, uh, yeah, I, I think Joe would be more than happy when he has any free time to answer some of these questions some people have. So, to chat. I have phone on me all the time, and I'm like, okay, I just check Twitter on my computer and check Discord on my computer. I'm on my phone looking at Twitter all over again. So. Uh, <laughs> basically always available this month might be a little scary with moving and everything but uh yeah i'm probably still going to be available even if i'm packing <laughs> yeah especially for some of you in the chat who are uh um i know aspiring game i don't know if game devs necessarily but wanting to get into the interactive entertainment space joe 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 knows a thing a lot of shit about that. <laughs> yeah we'll have so, to talk anyway. about that on a future podcast for sure very exciting yes um so thank you everyone for listening to us thank you also to our patrons who have helped us hit another goal um our patrons are now helping us directly cover a a nice chunk of studio uh, like our tools right now all oh and ah, joe throwing in a prime sub at the end shout out to our patrons shout out to our twitch subs who are really fundamentally right now we are paying for all of this unfortunately we are not a what was the word for the undead labs a partially in in yeah partially integrated integrated. (laughs) we are not a partially integrated studio with microsoft we are paying for all of this with our own money so uh, all of this help you are really making a big impact in helping us support uh, studio expenses, et cetera. So thank you so much to everyone. Uh, stay tuned. This is not the last you see of Joe. Um, <laughs> and we'll see you. Thanks so much, Joe. See you, everybody. Yeah, no problem. All right, bye.